Please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Appropriately, in this Lenten season, we are journeying with Christ to the cross through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in the events of Passion Week in Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Please listen as I read this passage for us. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we come now to this time with anticipation because we know that you speak to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to receive, and hearts to believe. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2007, on a Friday morning in January, the Washington Post ran a social experiment in the Washington, D.C. metro station. They had approached Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical violinists on the scene today, to play his violin in the metro station. Three days before, Joshua Bell had performed in Boston Symphony Hall, where tickets for average seats went for $100. Two weeks after this day, he played for a standing room only audience. But for the experiment in the Metro, Joshua Bell would play his violin anonymously. He would wear jeans, long sleeve t-shirt, baseball hat. He would place an open violin case at his feet and throw in a few dollars as seed money. He would play his 1713 Stradivarius violin, which he bought for 3.5 million. He would play some of the greatest classical pieces ever written for the violin, like Bach's Chacon. This was the experiment. Commuters that day would see a nondescript man standing against a bare wall in a metro station playing a violin, but they would be hearing one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. It was an experiment in context. Perception and priorities. What would the morning commuters do? Would anyone recognize and appreciate the beauty in such a banal context? Perhaps you know what happened. If you don't, when Joshua Bell started playing at 7.51 in the middle of the morning rush hour, 
Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post describes what happened. Three minutes went by before something happened. 63 people had already passed by when finally there was a breakthrough of sorts. A middle-aged man altered his gait for a split second, turning his head to notice that there seemed to be some guy playing music. Yes, the man kept walking, but it was something. Half a minute later, Bell got his first donation. A woman threw in a buck and scooted off. It was not until six minutes into the performance that someone actually stood against a wall and listened. But things never got much better. In the three quarters of an hour that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance for at least a minute. 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. That leaves 1,070 people who hurried by oblivious, many only three feet away few even turning to luck. Without the eyes to see or the ears to hear, we can be blind and deaf to the beauty that is right in front of us. So I think this passage is about, that I just read to you, everyone in this passage is blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God come in the flesh, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world was standing in front of them, and no one recognized it. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Mark is showing us this in real time. That Jesus is the unrecognized and rejected king. And there are three groups in this passage, three different groups who don't recognize Jesus and reject him. And I think each group represents a particular way that we can be blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. I'd like to look at them this morning. First way is we can be blinded by religion. Look with me at this passage. The first group who doesn't recognize Jesus really and rejects him is the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of the day. They had held a trial at night at the high priest's home. We looked at that last week. And they came into that trial already having made up their minds that Jesus was guilty, and they were just looking for a charge to try and pin on him. And when he committed blasphemy in their presence, they agreed that he was worthy of death. But since the Sanhedrin did not have the power of corporal punishment, they had to hand him over to the Roman government to make that happen. And so they bring him to Pilate. And very interestingly, the charge they bring to Pilate, to do what they charged Jesus with, was not blasphemy. Uh, Pilate would have dismissed that as an internal religious debate. The charge they brought to Pilate was political insurrection, that he was a threat to Rome. Notice the first question of Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? If Jesus was a king, he posed a threat to Caesar, and treason was punishable by death in that day. This is what the Sanhedrin had stayed up all night to discuss. What, what charge can we pin on Jesus to get the death penalty? And it's very ironic that the Sanhedrin bring this charge. Because, Jesus biggest disappointment, because the Jews' biggest disappointment about Jesus was that he was not more of a militaristic political messiah who would free them from the rule of the Romans. 
In other words, they were disappointed that Jesus was not more of a political insurrectionist. And yet this is precisely what they charge him of. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't answer. Doesn't answer yes, or that would have been immediate grounds for execution. Neither does he deny. He says, that's what you say. Now, I think it's shocking to remember that the people behind Jesus' crucifixion were not the irreligious, ultimately. It was not the profane, not the immoral, not criminals. It was the religious. Mark is saying here that, that religion can blind us from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Here it's the leading religious leaders who are pressing for Jesus' crucifixion. You say, how, how, how in the world does that happen? See, most people equate Jesus with religion. I mean, there are many people who would be like, you know, I'm not that interested in Jesus right now because I'm not, I'm not a religious person. And so how does this happen that it's religion that keeps people from Jesus? I think it's because of this. The religion of the Pharisees and teachers of the law was diametrically opposed to Jesus. Do you ever notice that Jesus, of all the people he rebuked, he rebuked the religious leaders most strongly in the New Testament. He told this parable about an upright Pharisee who was confident in his own righteousness. And there, way at the back of the room, was a tax collector who was very sinful and very humble. And you know what happens at the end of that parable? Jesus rebukes the Pharisee, the religious leader, and commends the tax collector. Why is this? Because the two are diametrically opposed. The religion of the Pharisees basically says that you can save yourself by your own works. You can save yourself by keeping the rules. You can make yourself, if you work hard enough, righteous before God and acceptable before God. And, and if you believe that, then it builds you up with pride when you keep the rules, and it fills you with judgment for all those people over there that don't keep the rules. And the good news of the gospel is diametrically opposed. The good news of the gospel says that you can't save yourself by your performance. No matter how hard you try, you can't do it. You're saved by the performance of Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace. And so the gospel leads to a posture of humility and grace. And that's why in Jesus' ministry, the tax collectors and the sinners flocked to Jesus. And the Pharisees were repelled. The Pharisees didn't think they needed grace. In fact, they were threatened by it because it undermined their whole system of pride and performance. The threat of grace, I think, is aptly described by Victor Hugo in Les Miserables. It's a moment that you know well. Valjean is the main character. He's a bitter ex-convict. He steals silver from a bishop who has shown him great kindness, taken him in, and he steals from him and runs away. He's caught by the police, hauled back before the bishop, and instead of throwing him into jail, the bishop extends more grace to him by giving him the silver and letting him go free. And in the book, Victor Hugo says this grace shakes Valjean to the core. Hugo writes this. Valjean was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest was the greatest assault, the most formidable attack which had moved him yet, that his obduracy was finally settled if he resisted this mercy, this clemency, that if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul through so many years and which pleased him. That this time it was necessary to conquer or be conquered. And that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle, had been begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. 
Steve Valjean is at a crossroads, conquer or be conquered. He chooses to be conquered by grace. And receiving grace, you know the story, changes him to the core of his being, and he becomes a, a transformed man. He becomes a gracious person. And the contrast then is drawn between the other main character, Javert, the police officer, the other, the other main character who built his entire life on keeping and enforcing the law. There was no room for grace in Javert's world. And when he finally falls into Valjean's hands, he righteously pursues Valjean, even though it wrecks him, ruins his life, when he finally falls into Valjean's hands, Valjean, who's become a man of grace, lets him go instead of killing him. And then this grace threatens Javert. He also realizes that if he accepts this grace, it will change him to the core. But he resists. He will not be conquered by grace. Instead, he throws himself into the Seine River and kills himself. You see, my friends, religion opposes grace, and grace opposes Religion. That's why religion can blind you to Jesus. And we are exactly like the Sanhedrin if our operating system is religion. You know, we're saying to ourselves, you know, I work really hard, and because I work really hard, I should be rewarded. I, I don't want free handouts. I don't need free handouts. I work really hard. And all I want is what I deserve. All I want is what's fair. In fact, I'm offended by grace. I'm, I'm offended when the first are last and the last are first. Here's a very subtle thing. On the outside, the religious person and the grace-filled person look the same. They both come to church. They both are moral people. They both serve their neighbors and are active in the community. What's different? What's different is their motivations. Their motivations are completely different. The religious person, the reason why they're going to church and doing all their good works is to earn their salvation. See what all that I'm doing, God? You have to accept me. The grace-filled person is obeying and going to church and doing good works not to earn salvation. They know they never could. But as a response to grace, sheer grace that I've received, I respond this way. They're completely different operating systems. And so if your operating system is religion, it can blind you to Jesus. Second, we can be blinded by politics. If the Sanhedrin rejects Jesus for religious reasons then Pilate rejects him for political reasons. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea who had crossed swords with the Jews on previous occasions, so he knew he had to be careful. Every time there was a big protest, he had to be careful. And with Jesus, his political instincts kick in. So on the one hand, he knows that Jesus has not committed a crime worthy of death. In John's account of this trial before Pilate, he finds no guilt in Jesus. He says that. He knows, moreover, that it is out of self-interest and, and envy that the chief priests have handed Jesus over to him. He recognizes that. He's not a dumb man. Verse 10 says that. Because it was his custom during the Feast of Passover to release one prisoner to the people, Pilate begins thinking, I can gain some political favor with the people by releasing Jesus. He thought for sure he's the, he's the man that the people would want. Three times he tries to get the people to free Jesus. Verse 9, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they say, crucify him. And they say, well, what, what should I, verse 12, I'm sorry, what shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And the people cry, crucify him. Verse 14, then he says, why? What crime has he committed? Three times Pilate tries to get the people to release Jesus. Because Pilate knows 
Pilate knows in his heart of hearts Jesus has done nothing to deserve death. And yet in the, yet in the end, he gives in to the will of the people. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. In other words, Pilate does the politically expedient thing. He cares more about his political reputation and pleasing people than he does acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is. Pilate is blinded by politics. I think there's a little bit of Pilate in each one of us. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at NYU. He's got this interesting metaphor for the human mind. He says the human mind is two parts that he likens to a rider and an elephant. He says the rider is a rational, analytical part of us. The, the, the rider represents our reason. The elephant represents everything else. The emotional and social parts of us. The automatic instincts that always are going on in the background. And Haidt's point is that there's a lot more than reason behind our behavior that explains why it is that we do what we do. He says, in fact, if the rider and elephant disagree about which direction to go, which do you think will win? The elephant will win. It's got a six-ton advantage. We are rational creatures, but we're also emotional and social creatures. And Haidt says our reason is like a rider, but our emotions and our social influence is like an elephant. It's a lot more powerful than we think and can carry us away no matter what our reason says. We don't like to admit this. See, we like to, we like to be the person who says, you know, I, I'm the person in the room who is an independent thinker. I'm the rational, enlightened one, and I've arrived at my positions through careful deliberation of the evidence. I, I, I'm the independent thinker here. I mean, I, I know everyone else is uh, influenced by their, their environment, their product, or their culture, but not me. I just saying that we should adopt a more epistemological humility about our views because we're all riding an elephant that influences us far more than we often recognize. Here's just a, a quick example. Our reason might tell us, you know, I should, I should wake up at 5.30 tomorrow in the morning to, to work out because I know I really need it. That's what our reason says. And then the alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning and the elephant takes over and we don't get up. <laughs> Think about these other examples. We are a politically divided country more than ever. And so what this means is wherever you stand on the political spectrum, it's awfully easy in this moment to think that half of the country are irrational idiots. And we're the rational ones. We're the enlightened ones. And, and, and you just say at half the country, like, why, why don't they get it? Jonathan Haidt is saying that if you grew up in the same cultural context as the people you may despise, and had the same cultural influences, you might have the exact same views. That our current political views might be more shaped by our social context than we're willing to admit. Let me give you another example. Solomon Ash was a social psychologist at Swarthmore College in the mid-1900s. In 1950, he ran an experiment among 50 students at Swarthmore College, and he gave this comparison test to a participant. On the left, you've got to visualize this, on the left was a line of one length, and then on the right was a set of three lines of different lengths, A, B, and C, with one of the lines matching the line on the left. The comparison test was simple. The participant had to say which line, A, B, or C, matched the line on the left. And the answer was easy. The answer was obvious. 
Banash put the participant in a group of seven other students who were all instructed beforehand to agree on a wrong answer without the participant knowing it. Each person in the room had to state aloud which comparison line, A, B, or C, was most like the target line. But here's the setup. The real participant sat at the end of the row and gave his answer last after hearing all the others give their wrong answer. Ash wanted to see if the real participant would conform to the majority view, even though it was plainly wrong. What do you think happened? Ash found that one-third of the time, the participant went along with the majority. And when interviewed after the experiment, most of the participants said they did not really believe their conforming answer, but had gone along with the group for fear of being ridiculed or thought peculiar. A few said that they really did believe the group's answers were the correct ones. In other words, we are a lot more socially influenced than we are willing to admit. It's a rider on the elephant. Is it possible that our views of Jesus are more socially influenced than we're willing to admit? If you're here and you're rejecting Jesus, like Pilate does, is it because, is it possible that it's because of the influence of the crowd that is around you? See, in the 1950s, our culture made it a lot more plausible to believe in Jesus because, you know, basically everyone said they were a Christian no matter what. That was the 1950s culture. In 2023, the ground has shifted. And for a variety of reasons, I think the culture makes it less plausible to believe in Jesus. So all you have to do is do nothing and just go with the flow and you won't believe in Jesus. The social influence, the social influence today moves us away from Jesus. See, like Pilate. We can be blinded to Jesus by politics. Third, we can be blinded by a rival Jesus. The Sanhedrin rejects Jesus for religious reasons. Pilate does for political reasons. Now let's look at the crowd. The crowd rejects Jesus for a rival Jesus. They prefer Barabbas over Jesus. And Mark tells us that the chief priests put them up to it, but the crowds go along with it. It's interesting, we don't know much about Barabbas, but we know this. His name in Hebrew means son of Abba. And here's the interesting thing. There's there's a number of reliable transcripts of Matthew 27, 16 that indicate that his given name was Jesus. You get that? His given name was Jesus, though he was called Barabbas. Which then raises the significance of this choice. Pilate's saying, which Jesus do you want? Jesus, son of Abba? Or Jesus, the true son of Abba. We also know that Barabbas was a known murderer. In a political uprising against Rome, perhaps then he was even a Jewish zealot. Perhaps he was a folk hero, a freedom fighter, a patriot for the people. That's what the Jews had hoped Jesus would be. That kind of Messiah, a political military Messiah who would free them for the boot of the Romans. And he wasn't that kind of Messiah. And so Pilate is giving... The crowd had a choice between two Jesuses. One, a man of military means. The other, a man of peace. One who is trying to establish an earthly kingdom. And the other who is trying to establish a heavenly kingdom. One, a fiery, dramatic man of action. The other, a gentle and lowly shepherd. And Pilate's saying, which do you choose? And the people choose Barabbas over Jesus, blinded by a rival Jesus. It's like the moment when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Remember what Jesus' response was? 
He said, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. You say, what in the world? I didn't know that was a prerequisite for following Jesus. And it's not. Jesus doesn't say this to everyone, but he says it to this man. Why? Because he knows the rich young ruler, for him, money is a rival Jesus. And Jesus is, is in effect saying to him, which Jesus do you choose, your money or me? If you can't have both, which do you choose? Jesus said, unless a man hates his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. And you say, what in the world? Jesus is not calling us to hate our families. I think he's using hyperbolic language to say, even your family cannot be a rival Jesus. We can be blinded by a rival Jesus. For the crowd, the choice was between Barabbas or Jesus. And someday we all face a choice between Jesus and something else. Will it be money or Jesus? Will it be family or Jesus? Will it be comfort and security or Jesus? Will it be our career or Jesus? The bad news of this passage is that we can be blind to the glory of Jesus for religious reasons, for political reasons. For a rival Jesus. And what the Bible calls sin is trusting a substitute God, a substitute Savior, and rejecting the true Savior. And we're all guilty of that. The good news of this passage is that Jesus was rejected for our salvation. God's plan to rescue us from our sins was not thwarted by the rejection of Jesus, but accomplished through it. Pilate was guilty for what he did. The Jewish leaders were guilty for what they did. But God sovereignly planned it at the same time. Acts 4 says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. God in his sovereignty sent Jesus into this world to be rejected. Why? So that he would, be di- he would die as our substitute on the cross. The Bible calls this substitutionary atonement. And we have a wonderful picture in this passage of that. Jesus, the innocent man, dies in Barabbas' place, the known murderer. That Jesus dies so that Barabbas goes free. And my friends, that is exactly what Jesus does for us. Jesus, the truly innocent, righteous man, goes to the cross and, and dies in our place, the guilty sinner, so that he dies and we go free. My friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was condemned that we might go free. He was cast out as an utter outsider, God-forsaken, that we could be brought in and made sons and daughters of the king. The bad news of this passage is our sin. The good news is the gospel. And then there is an implication for all those who follow Jesus. The implication is this. When we follow Jesus, we will experience what he experienced. There will be moments that we go unrecognized and perhaps even rejected. Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you 
also. Mark was writing his gospel to believers in Rome who would go on trial for their faith and be rejected and persecuted. And they would read this account of Jesus before Pilate. And they'd say, we are just experiencing what our Savior experienced for us. The story is told of a missionary couple who had served God in Africa for 40 years. Their ministry was not easy. They were returning discouraged with a health in decline and no retirement savings. They were returning to New York City and found that they had booked a ticket on the same ocean liner on which the American president at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, was returning from one of his celebrated big game hunting trips to Africa. They, they watched, this couple watched, all the other passengers strained to catch a glimpse of the president during the voyage. And then as the ship pulled into the dock, this missionary couple stood at the rail by themselves and watched all the great fanfare to welcome Teddy Roosevelt home. There was a band. The mayor and other dignitaries and reporters were there on hand. A red carpet was rolled out. But there was no one there to welcome home this missionary couple after all their years of service. And envy began to creep over the husband and he began to feel sorry for himself. I've served all these years for God in Africa and there's no one to welcome me home. Teddy Roosevelt goes on a hunting trip and all of New York turns out to welcome him home. And then God quietly answers his lament with these words. You're not home yet. Jesus is the unrecognized and rejected king. For our sakes. For our salvation. And if we follow him, we will also be unrecognized and rejected. But that's not the end of our story. We're not home yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done on our behalf. What he endured on our behalf. The innocent one in place of the guilty. He was rejected that we might be accepted. Lord, help us to recognize him as our true king. To bend our knee to him. To love him. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>